In October, President Trump directed the Acting Secretary of Health and Human Services to declare the opioid crisis a national public health emergency. In the years leading up to that decision, six states used their own legal authority to make similar emergency declarations. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking with Lainey Rutko, an Associate Professor of Health Policy and Management at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. Dr. Rutko has co-authored a perspective article about the role of emergency declarations in combating the opioid epidemic. Dr. Rutko, you write in your article that emergency declarations typically pertain to natural disasters, infectious disease outbreaks. Have there been other instances in which these declarations were used for non-communicable health conditions, either federal or state? That's a wonderful question. And my understanding after working in this area for over a decade is that this is really the first instance where we're consistently seeing use of emergency declarations to address a non-communicable health condition. And I think there are many reasons for that. One is that the nature of non-communicable health conditions is changing. They've simply become more prevalent over time. And something like the opioid crisis has really emerged to reach the level of what states and federal government by law might consider an emergency. So the six states that have issued these emergency declarations include some of the states that have been hardest hit by the opioid epidemic, but not all of them. So why did the governors or health commissioners of these six states, but not others, decide to take these actions? So I've been fortunate to have the opportunity to speak with many of the folks in these six states who were directly involved in the decision to declare an emergency. And in some instances, for example, in Alaska, the state wanted to implement a standing order for naloxone, meaning that it would be accessible to anyone without an individual prescription. But they realized that legally they needed the emergency declaration in place to do it. Now, other states that may be harder hit by the opioid crisis might have been able to impose a naloxone standing order without formally declaring an emergency. You give one example of a strategy a state could use after making an emergency declaration. Are there other approaches besides that non-prescription availability that states have taken? Certainly. And even in just the six declarations that have been issued, we've seen quite a bit of variation. So I mentioned standing orders for access to naloxone. Another naloxone-related change that's occurred with these declarations in some states is to allocate funds for training, so training law enforcement, training others in carrying and administration of naloxone. So that's one area. A different area that we've seen states make progress in using emergency declarations concerns prescription drug monitoring programs. Back in 2014, when Massachusetts issued its emergency declaration, they used part of the declaration to promote use of their PDMP. And in fact, they changed the legal requirements to make use of the PDMP mandatory. You write that perhaps the most immediate effect of any emergency declaration is to raise the public profile of the issue. So is there evidence that in the case of opioid overuse, the state declarations have actually had an effect on public attitudes? It's an area that I'm quite intrigued by, but it's one where we don't know a whole lot. So because these declarations, other than Massachusetts, which was issued in 2014, the others are fairly new. Most of them are less than a year old. No one has yet rigorously evaluated the impact, if any, of these declarations on public attitudes. And we also haven't yet had the opportunity to evaluate whether these declarations actually lead to changes in health outcomes related to opioid use disorders. You also talk in your article about the need to balance the use of emergency powers against respect for civil liberties and that they should be implemented with appropriate legal safeguards to protect vulnerable groups. 
In this case, what do you see as the vulnerable groups? I think there are many different groups that could be perceived as vulnerable when we're talking about opioid use disorders. But one group in particular are individuals who are themselves struggling with an opioid use disorder. Now, the types of changes that we've seen imposed thus far by the states that have used emergency declarations won't necessarily infringe on anyone's civil liberties. Things like improving access to naloxone, there's really not a downside to that when you're thinking in terms of civil liberties. But it's certainly something to bear in mind. And the area that we more often see civil liberties concerns come up with when we're thinking about emergency declarations concerns things like movement restrictions, so quarantine and isolation, but that would be in the context of an infectious disease. As we said at the outset, in October, the federal government declared the opioid epidemic a national public health emergency. So what have the implications of that declaration been for federal funding and federal action? This has been a very busy fall going into winter for the federal government. And other than what was announced with the initial declaration and then the subsequent um, official signing of the Public Health Emergency Declaration by the Acting Secretary of Health and Human Services, there hasn't at least publicly been a lot of information available. When the declaration was announced, the government indicated that federal funds might be shifted from one place to another to help address opioid use disorders, although promises related to increased or new funds that would become available to the states, I believe, have not yet materialized. Finally, what can individual physicians do to advocate for action by their state governments, either in the form of emergency declarations or other policy interventions? At the physician level, there are several opportunities that I see. One is to work through state-level professional organizations to improve things like opportunities or offerings for CMEs related to opioid use disorders. And one thing that that CME could do, for example, is provide training and education related to prescribing of buprenorphine or other evidence-based treatments for opioid use disorders. Another opportunity related to this area for physicians comes with access to and use of prescription drug monitoring programs. The information that goes into those databases and whether or not use of them is required is determined by state-level law. So physicians, by advocating directly to officials in their state's legislative branch or by speaking with the agency that houses their PDMP, actually have an opportunity to really make their voices heard in terms of what information would be most useful to them, what are current issues with the interface of the PDMP. I know I've spoken to healthcare providers in several states who are anxious for their PDMP data to be integrated into EMRs, which would make it much more efficient to use. Thank you, Dr. Rutko.